My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, today we're going to be talking to a very interesting entrepreneur who has built a business and realized, thanks to Gen AI, he's actually able to do a lot more things than he expected before. So he has launched a new product that is really driven by Gen AI and just understanding his journey, where he has been, what he has learned, and how he is taking advantage of this new technology is really interesting because it's allowed Charlie Hernandez, who's my guest, to go from an original concept more in fintech to basically expand into legal tech to broaden his audience from the Hispanic community where he started out towards really anybody who needs more access to legal and financial tools. So really interesting. Just I love seeing and talking with an entrepreneur who has gone out there, sees his or her company as a laboratory, keeps an eye on the market and evolving technology, and then brings it all together into a solution, which is what we're going to be talking about today. My guest, Carlos Charlie Hernandez, is the founder and CEO of Crediverso and My Pocket Lawyer, which is his new product. An LA native, Carlos is the grandson and son of Hispanic immigrants and grew up not only listening to stories, but seeing firsthand how the US financial and legal system affected the Hispanic immigrant experience. Now, he is a graduate of Harvard undergrad law and business school. He's got the trifecta, wow. He's a registered attorney with the American Bar Association in California and a licensed real estate broker with the California Bureau of Real Estate. He's got it all. Now, what are you going to learn today? This is one of these episodes I so enjoy, which is just like, let's get inside the head of an entrepreneur. What are they doing? What are they doing with the information they learn? How are they integrating that into their plan and building that business? Now, my small ask today, head over to LinkedIn, Patrick Dash McGinnis. I got all kinds of good stuff there for you. Connect with me. Find me there. I always like meeting you, my listeners, and you can send me ideas, thoughts, whatever. Just make sure you send me a little note and let me know you're a FOMO Sapiens listener and you're not trying to sell me something because there's a lot of that too. That would be very helpful, but I will definitely look for you out there on LinkedIn. All right, and now onto the interview. And as you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. So I asked Charlie this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? Well, luckily, as a fan of the show, I saw this one coming. I knew the question was going to be asked, and so I had some time to think about it. And it's a tough question, but because there are so many different formative decisions that we take over the course of our lives. But I think the one for me was, if I look back from when I, I had two parents who were both lawyers. My mother grew up in Mexico. Um, she was actually the son of another lawyer. Dad grew up in LA, but both of them went to law school practice. And my entire life, I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, it was always law, law, law. When I was in college, I was part of the Undergraduate Law Society. I was the editor of the Undergraduate Law Review, which is kind of like the um, baby brother to the Harvard Law Review, um, very much a baby brother. And then I went to law school. 
you know, throughout the whole that time, I practiced in a junior capacity. I was at law firms in Mexico City. Um, I did some work at a law firm in New York. And when I graduated, to, to answer your question, the biggest formative decision I took, it was not going into a big law firm. And that was that really impacted my career in so many ways because it's in many ways, not that it is an easy job at all. I mean, you're working probably 16 hours a day, almost every day, but uh, it was the easy path to follow because it is one that is very secure. It is very certain. And I was graduated from a school that sends probably a larger proportion of the student body to big corporate law firms in New York than anybody else, but not going to a big corporate law firm put me in the position to do something that I felt was much more important to my life goals. And that was one, it was to start a company, uh, was to start this company, Curdy Verso, which we can talk about more today, um, and to doing something entrepreneurial, but also do something that would help people directly. And it gave me the opportunity to have exposure to both individuals and small businesses in a variety of different um, areas and give, gave me insight into what their challenges were, what their needs were, how we as a small business could could help them. Uh, and then also just putting me in their shoes almost, you know, I was operating a small business and it gave me very good perspective into what those challenges were. And so that has shaped what we've done as a company, what I've done personally, what's, what has really been rewarding to me. And I don't know if I would have had those same opportunities if I had taken that well-trodden path of going to a big law firm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you kind of, you did something really, I think really intelligent or really, really clever, which is, you, you got the credential, like, so you could always go back, but you took the risk to do the thing when the stakes were lower. And so you kind of had that perfect combination of like a nice backup plan. But if you weren't feeling it, then, you know, why not go explore? So that's what you did. And you started this company called Crediverso. Now, tell us a little bit about the company and why, you know, I always love to know, like, you know, that founder product fit or that founder company fit? Like, why was this the company you wanted to start? It's a great question. And I think for a long time, I had wanted to do something that was positive for the community. And there's always, especially coming from the fields of law, finance, whatever it is, um, there is always that inherent tension between doing something that is positive for humanity and doing something that is positive for professional career growth, big paycheck, big fancy, uh, imprimatur, whatever it is. And, um, I, I wanted to do something ideally that would accomplish both. I think that's the you know, the perfect outcome. Um, and so I grew up the son of an immigrant family. My mother grew up in Mexico, and I had seen firsthand the challenges of being an immigrant in the U.S. Uh, the access to information, you have language issues, you have uh, disparate access to resources. It is very hard to be an immigrant in the U.S. Um, and I saw that, you know, not not directly because I grew up here, but through many friends and family members, we were always crossing back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. And so I saw this, I had this visibility into a community that was vastly underserved by the offerings that existed here in the U.S., uh, especially compared to the general market. And they're by no means the only underserved community. There are many communities that are underserved, but it was one that I knew well. Uh, and we made the decision essentially as a company to try to solve some of the needs of this underserved community. We established as our core mission statement to serve the underserved. We began with the Hispanic community because it's such a large portion of the country. Uh, and we had the intention of expanding even beyond that into broader immigrant groups and really anybody who was underserved. But the core mission always was to serve the underserved. And that's what we were doing with that company. Take me through the process of building the business plan. So you kind of have this 
this vision, how did you figure out the best way to tackle that? Because you hadn't done this before, right? You'd, you'd been, obviously you'd gone to business school and law school and you'd worked in kind of the hotel industry, but this is a whole different pivot. Like what was your process to number one, figure out what you wanted to do. And number two, like, you know, sort of be able to look investors straight in the eye and tell them like, I'm the, the right person to build this. I think you have different types of founders and and I'm sure you'll appreciate this given your your uh, the seat you have as a venture investor but there are definitely different types of founders you can have a technical founder you can have uh, a non-technical but business savvy founder um, and in certain instances you have either a founder who knows the business really well or you have a founder who knows the market really well the demo and mm-hmm. I think I was the latter I was one who knew the demo really well I very distinctly understood the pain points and the challenges of our core user base uh, and the idea was to, beginning with that consumer, have taken a consumer-centric approach, identify what their challenges were and how we could respond to those, and then build the business around that. And so that's what we did. We actually began as a fintech company. We've uh, expanded, and I would say we are probably even more of a legal tech company now than we are a fintech company, but the the core... Uh, mission of the company remained the same, which was identify areas where our consumer was underserved and try to create products and solutions that would serve those. And so in our uh, initial founding as a fintech company, we basically observed that you have all of these financial products in the US from it, whether it's loans and credit cards, uh, to insurance, to bank accounts, to tax products. And you had this one community that was underserved across all of those different verticals. And so we actually began by trying to create solutions for some of those different financial verticals. We created a series of marketplaces that gave people visibility and information and access to these different product categories. And so we created this tool that I thought was really interesting, which was um, basically for remittances, which is uh, international money transfers. And as you can imagine, a large portion of immigrants who come here to the country to make a better life for themselves, they send a good portion of their paycheck every single week back to their home, you know, back to their home countries to their families. And we give them a tool to find the cheapest and the best way to send remittance every single time they do it. Uh, and the, these remittance services, they can be very expensive. They can have a lot of fees. And if we could remove some of those fees every week for someone or every two weeks when they got their paycheck, then we were actively making people's lives better every time with that tool. And it was totally free to the user because we would get the, uh, it was a, almost an affiliate structure where we were compensated by the remittances uh, company. So, you know, that was one example of how we did it. Another example that we've been working on recently is a banking product that doesn't require you to be fully documented as a citizen in the U.S. Very challenging product to build, but um, a very necessary product. I mean, we were not long ago, we had a uh, company summit here in LA. We have folks kind of all over the country and down in Latin America, but we had a company summit here in LA and we were over in the El Salvador corridor in downtown LA. And I was speaking with a woman who shared a story about how her father, who immigrated here from El Salvador, used to, uh, every dollar he made, he would put it in an empty Gatorade bottle and bury it in the dirt underneath the freeway underpass, overpass, um, because he had he didn't couldn't get a bank account had nowhere safer to put it. So you hear stories like this about people waiting in lines outside remittance companies uh, about in spending half their paycheck just on the fee, about people putting money in bottles underneath freeway overpass because they can't ac- get access to bank accounts. And the mission becomes very clear as a founder what you need to do. And I mean I'll, I'll share a bit about what we're working on next um, in a moment, but it, it, it has all stemmed from these observations of actually having conversations with real users, real small business owners, uh, and seeing where, where they were having challenges. FOMO. 
Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. So you're sort of, it sounds like what your approach has been, has been you, you, you get, you deeply know the customer and the customer's needs and pain points. So you're, you're like, you, you understand the customer partially because of your own lived experience, but also because you did a ton of work on that. And then you're innovating on financial products that are there to help that person in many different ways, whether that's bringing them to the banking system or providing financial services around that. I'm curious, like this is, you know, this is a, customer that is growing, obviously, like the U.S. Hispanic community and the amount of folks that um, we can sort of put into that um, into that community has grown over time and also is becoming more financially powerful. But at the same time, it's not new, and yet it's still deeply underserved. And I'm curious, like, as you think about that coming in as a new entrepreneur, like, how do you frame that up? Because you're like, well, This is a, a group of people who have a ton of needs that aren't being served, but it's not like nobody's ever done this before. Nobody's ever tried to solve these problems before. How do you as an entrepreneur build up the confidence to think that you can be the one that will kind of chip away at this in a different way? Oh, hubris, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that's way. That's a precondition of being a good entrepreneur. It really it? is. I think you have to have boundless optimism, honestly. Um, and mm. seeing seeing our ability to have a real impact, even with, if it's with just one individual, that, that reaffirms everything that you went out there to, to accomplish. It, it makes you believe in yourself, makes you believe in the optimism that you have, that you can actually have that impact when you see a tool that you build being actually used by somebody uh, who needed it. And I think you, know, you, you hit on something really interesting, which is that this is, a, this is a growing demographic. And as these communities shift into different portions of the socioeconomic curve, the challenges that they face uh, are correspondingly different. And so over the course of lots of conversations we were having with our users, whether they were individuals, freelancers, or small business owners, we observed that the challenges they were facing were very different than the challenges that our parents' generation were facing, as you can imagine. And um, as this is a, you know, our, our core demo, um, Hispanic immigrants to the U.S. is uh, statistically the most entrepreneurial segment of the U.S. They start more businesses than any other group um, and much more frequently. The uh, corresponding challenges that emerged as a result of that are that they now have to deal with all of the daily problems of being a small business owner, all of the problems with vendors, all the problems with employees, with hiring, and many of those are legal in nature. And so this ultimately led us to create uh, what is our most recent product, which is called My Pocket Lawyer. And it was based on the observation that um, whether you're an individual, a freelancer, a small business owner, every day you are going to be confronting some sort of legal issue. Hopefully, you know, many of them are minor. Some of them become more serious. But you generally have two options available to you. You can either Google it 
And maybe you'll find an article on how to do something generally in the area of what you're trying to do on LegalZoom or Rocket Lawyer or something like that. Or you can pay a lawyer. Maybe you have a friend who's a lawyer, but they're probably not the right type of lawyer. But for the most part, you will either have to go online or you'll have to go to a lawyer. And especially in the communities that we're dealing with, these underserved communities, access to justice, we call it, uh, is really far and few between. Uh, it, it really, it, it's, not, it's not always available. There are legal deserts, um, legal pro bono institutes are really not available. They're always um, totally overworked. And so uh, we built this tool that essentially lets users take any sort of legal challenge that, they're, that they have. And you know, they, they have a, a vendor who didn't perform. They can upload the contract they ask questions about it. We tell them what their options are. We, we simplify the contract for them. If, it's, if they speak Spanish and the contract is in English, we translate the entire thing for them and give them answers uh, in their language, any language, by the way, because um, we know that this is a challenge that is not unique to this demographic. And the, the goal here was really to democratize access to legal services. Now, the interesting thing, uh, Patrick, is that as we built this tool out, it was for with this core demographic in mind, um, but against the backdrop of our company mission, which was serving the underserved, I was having lots of conversations with folks just in my community, other entrepreneurs, about the tool. And I was talking to my girlfriend, actually, who is a uh, filmmaker, director, writer. She has a, um, a documentary on homelessness out on Amazon Prime right now called The Tent Mender. Uh, and she- Good pitch there. That's a good, that's a good plug right there. Everybody go, what's the it called? The Tent Mender. Uh, Okay, everybody, go watch and that. It's, uh, it goes deep into the challenges of homelessness in Los Angeles and the causes. And she, by virtue of being in the creative profession, uh, had a unique insight here, which is, hey, this is not just something that it needs to be applicable to small business owners in your core demographic creative versa. This is something I could use it. Every person I know in the creative industry could use it. I know so many creatives who've been taken advantage of on their contracts. I mean, we have a strike in Hollywood going on right now. And a large portion of that is because people don't know what is happening to the IP, their likeness. And it's because you get these two-inch thick contracts that nobody wants to read or understand. Even lawyers don't want to go through them. Uh, and so if we can give people a tool that uh, simplifies things, explains them to them in just under, easy to understand English or Spanish, whatever language you speak, it really empowers the consumer in a way that we haven't really had access to before. And, you know, we're using generative AI and a lot of phenomenal technology to accomplish this, but it's kind of the first time that this access to consumer legal services has been so widely available. And that's why we uh, are launching this product as My Pocket Lawyer and not simply as another product for Crediverso, because Crediverso, the name comes from Credit Universe in Spanish. Uh, and it, it, I think, communicates that our core demo was Hispanics living in the US. My Pocket Lawyer is something that anybody can use. Uh, and it was a, an observation that we really came to by accident, but it has had so far phenomenal impact on the, on the folks that have uh, been able to use it. FOMO. FOMO. So this is really interesting. And this is something that I think anybody who's been an entrepreneur can relate to, which is you're building your company, you're doing your thing, you're in a niche, you know, and then you learn something. And that insight allows you to iterate a new product that maybe doesn't, you know, it serves the niche, but also could serve a much bigger group of people, which is, you know, yes, of course, Hispanic entrepreneurs and business owners will value my pocket lawyer, but so will anybody who's starting a business. And so I'm curious, like, Charlie, when you think about this, I hate to throw the F word, but I'm going to say the FOMO thing, like, how do you think about 
the, um, you know, you've got limited time resources, capital, all this sort of stuff around that. You, you've got to obviously focus, but you see this great opportunity. How do you think about dedicating resources, time and energy to what you were building before versus, you know, this new thing that you're excited about? Do you do them both? Do you choose one? What's your strategy around that? It's a very interesting challenge. And so the way that we came upon this, um, this product, the solution, it's part of it came by virtue of technology that we were building in the process of building out another, another product. Uh, and so you, you may be familiar with the story of the founding of Slack, but, um, that's a company that, you know, we, our company use every day and they, uh, it was a group of guys who were working on, uh, a, I think a video game solution and they built out Slack as an internal messaging tool for their video game product. And all of a sudden they realized, hey, you know, our, our video game product, yeah, maybe people like it, maybe people don't, but people really like this internal messaging tool. It's really useful. And so there becomes the, the company that we now know as Slack, which is a massive company. Um, and that's really similar to how we landed on this product. We were working on building this banking solution for recent immigrants, people who were undocumented. Um, and one of the challenges was that you can you can actually in this country get a bank account without a social security number. Many banks don't want to let you do it. It's There are additional challenges for anti-money laundering, for KYC, know your customer. Um, and it's basically more resource intensive and more expensive, but it's possible. Um, the way that makes it a lot easier is if you have what's called a tax ID number, which is just this additional piece of documentation. So we found that we had tons of users who we could get into a bank account if they didn't have a social security number, but if they did have a tax ID number. And we started building out this tool to help them get through the documentation, this government documentation. You can imagine it's a total headache um, to get through that documentation with basically the benefit of generative AI. So we would take a snapshot of whatever they had, whether it was a foreign driver's license, whatever, um, and we would essentially help them populate this tool in an automated way, apply for this document, and then they would be a now for the first time an eligible bank account holder, which was great because the hardest thing in digital banking is creating that primary account relationship. If you're the first account they've ever had, you don't need to worry about them switching to other accounts or not creating direct deposit for you. It's way better. But as we were doing that, we said, okay, this technology we've built, we actually can scan contracts with it. We can uh, answer uh, legal questions about it. We're connected to these legal databases now. So the breadth of opportunity for solving people's problems is arguably deeper here. And by the way, it is a way uh, less capital intensive pursuit than launching a very heavily regulated uh, financial product. Um, and so that's still in the roadmap for us. Uh, and I think we'll be able to facilitate it when we when we choose in a much better way even than we were previously now because we have the benefit of all these customers who are engaged with us in different areas um, and we can KYC them better. They trust us. They, there is brand equity. But for the moment, we've made the decision that this is a far more interesting, high utility and beneficial tool to a wider total addressable market, consumers, individuals, small business owners, um, many of whom extend way beyond what was previously our core demographic. Now, you've just been un undertaking a fundraising exercise, like going on raising more capital. And I know, you know, a lot of folks listening to this show, if they're entrepreneurs, this is on their minds because, you know, VC, depending where you are in the world, but in general, VC has pulled back. There's still capital, of course, because these VC funds have tons of money under management. But there is a level of, uh, you know, sort of circumspection and caution 
if we contrast today to 2021, it's a completely different world out there. And so you've been out in the trenches doing the exercise, you know, you're like a, it's like you, you're like the, you know, the explorer that's coming back to the, to the village to tell us like what you found in the, in the world out there. What did you learn? What has changed versus, you know, when you, you did this exercise before and, you know, what would be, you know, your sort of, uh, as, as folks think about raising capital, like what would be your sort of guidance to them? So, um, yeah, we, we just concluded a fundraising round not long ago. Uh, we raised an additional about three and a half million dollars. Um, and, uh, we're very happy with it. Um, it was oversubscribed round. And I think we were, uh, lucky to have raised our, our initial rounds, our pre-seed round from phenomenal investors who came back and participated in the second round. And so from one perspective, um, it's, you know, because we had the ability to uh, grow with these investors and show them what we were working on, uh, and they were able to see under the hood, they they came and invested in our round again. So that was that was useful. Now, for a uh, blank slate process, I think the um, observations on the market are really crucial right now. And, and the ones that um, that I've seen at least through the virtue of this last fundraising exercise was that there has been a retrenchment to fundamentals. Uh, and what I mean by that is that. Good companies will get funded if you're able to demonstrate traction, if you're able to demonstrate putting together a solid team, if you're able to demonstrate that you have a clear understanding of the target market and the problem. Um, and I think that's a really good thing because in certain parts of the last cycle, there was a lot of money flowing into the market to companies that probably um, – should have been focused on a different product, different demo, whatever it was. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing I think is the importance of leveraging technology in the right way. And what I mean by that is, so we are, I'll, I'll mention one of the t- uh, components of technology behind what we're doing right now. People talk a lot about generative AI. That's, I think, a very hot topic at the moment, especially among certain in- investor circles. Um, and the way we've been using it uh, is in legal tech, which I think is a pretty well understood approach to how to leverage this technology just by virtue of uh, the solutions it is well positioned to um, to go after. And you've seen a lot of money, perhaps too much money going into the legal tech uh, investment sector for enterprise. Um, there are a lot of companies and many of them are doing great things, by the way. But you know, you've got companies like um, Harvey that closed a $21 million round. You've got companies like Spiff closed a $50 million round. Logic.io, $16 million. Toll Council, Spellbook, all great companies, all doing really interesting stuff uh, on the legal tech side, but all on enterprise. And nobody's going after consumer. And I think as far as I know, we're the only ones who are doing consumer legal technology. And the point, I guess, that I would make there is that, um, and you know, maybe we can bring this back to the uh, one of I think the core themes of this podcast, which is that venture investing can be a very FOMO-driven process. And I would be wary of chasing any any trend, either as an investor or as an entrepreneur who's trying to raise capital. Don't go directly after the trend. A few years ago, it was the metaverse. Uh, then it was crypto. Um, now it's generative AI. To do it in the same way that everybody is doing, I think, is a fool's errand. Um, and there has to be something unique about why you're using the technology, why you're taking this approach, why you're going this product direction. And if there isn't, they're going to see right through it. I'll tell you something. You nailed it. Because you know who you don't want to raise money from, Charlie? 
you don't want to raise money from the Internet of Things fund that pivoted to NFTs and is now focused on AI. And that is what I think is so interesting about this moment is that I thought we were going to have a tech pullback and it was going to be this like real retrenchment. And it has been in a lot of ways, right? Of course. And there's going to be companies that are failing and all these sorts of things. But it's interesting that like I see that the, some of these funds now, they're like, don't look over there. We're investing in AI. So like, you know, give us more money. And I do think that like you just, uh, you've, you've made a really important point. It's like, it's not about the technology. It's about how the technology is harnessed in service of the client. The technology is not the star of the show. The user is the star of the show. And if people don't think about it that way, they're going to just, it's, it all becomes like a bunch of silly, silly times. Yep. That's exactly right. And I think getting back to your question about, um, what our approach was when we started this company, it really was consumer centric from day one. And without that focus, uh, it's just so easy to get distracted by the next shiny thing. And, you know, we happen to have been able to use this recent technology to solve a problem that our users were already telling us they had, but to do full pivots, chasing every next thing, it's, um, it can get very distracting very quickly. And uh, ultimately, you can find that you're not executing on even the initial thing that you set out to do. Now, if you want to learn more about the product we've been talking about, you can go to mypocketlawyer.ai. And if you want to learn more about this company, Crediversa, you can check them out as well on the web. Charlie Hernandez, founder and CEO of Crediverso and mypocketlawyer.ai. Thanks so much for being here. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMO Sapiens.com. FOMO.